0: Those are conversations I had never had with my grandma or my dad at all. So the project was really an excuse to delve into that history, and I learned a lot more than I thought I would.
1: You're listening to Easy Cook Bear, a food and culture show about how we cook, connect, and create. My name is Lee Sean. I'm a queer Taiwanese-American immigrant, designer, and passionate home cook. Together with my guests, we'll be sharing stories, swapping recipes, and exploring the creative processes of people who make art, culture, food, music, and more. Easy cook bear. Welcome back to another edition of Easy Cook Bear. I'm Lee Sean, our guest this episode is a Korean-American multidisciplinary artist from Brooklyn, New York. She creates multimedia performances in galleries, theaters, and public spaces. Her works connect personal narratives to global histories through surreal storytelling. She studied art at Yale University and is an alumni of The Laundromat Project for Socially Engaged Art. Jamie sun thanks for coming on the show.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, it's good to reconnect as well, especially during COVID and all of these times. I feel like I haven't seen you in person in a while or your face <laughs> on Zoom. Yeah,
0: yeah, definitely. It's, it's been a weird time.
1: So before we get into your work and uh, what you do, what's the last thing that you ate today?
0: So I've been having conversations with friends about this kind of like times in your life where you're ambitious and you want to eat the thing that makes you happy. And then times when you're really stressed out and busy and you just want to shove as many calories into your mouth the fastest way possible. Yeah. And so unfortunately my life has been the latter recently and I've ate a uh, very joyless food. So this morning I just like shoved a quarter of a baguette into my mouth and ate like four blueberries. Okay. And a glass of milk.
1: And the four blueberries, was it just because you're busy or you're...
0: Uh, I ate four blueberries and then I knocked the container over and spilled them on the floor and then scrambled to pick them back up. (laughs) Oh no. I know. They're still edible, but I was in a rush this morning. This morning has been kind of a... Um, a funky morning, but that, that's okay. It happens.
1: Well, I hope you get to enjoy the blueberries later and get to eat something with a little bit more joy. And I appreciate you taking some time out to talk to us despite your busy morning.
0: Oh yeah, no, it's all good. I was looking forward to this actually. I was like, I need uh, a health break because basically the, the project I've been working on is not about food at all. It's about QAnon. <laughs>
1: Well, why don't we talk about that project first and then we'll go back to your spam project and then we'll yeah. discover more about your personal history and your culinary heritage and all of that and we'll weave it all together. So right. QAnon is also very timely. So let's let's hear about that project.
0: So I started this fellowship with Pink Chong and Company, which is a multidisciplinary performance organization that often works with community members in their works. Um, but, you know, Pink Chong, who as the artistic director, has been part of the New York art scene since the 70s and uh, has a really eclectic range of work. And so he's been revisiting this piece called Nocturne in 1200 Seconds, which he did for a festival in Hong Kong a long time ago. Um, And basically for that, he had these like two uh, performers voicing monologues through found text. And that found text was all related to kind of like War atrocities, hmm. so very, very dark. And I thought he gave us the opportunity to create a new work based on that format. And so we decided, um, Matt and I are Matt's my collaborator. We decided to create a piece where we have these parallel narratives of people covering all the chaos of 2020. Yeah. But uh, one side is the mainstream news media, and one side's the QAnon conspiracy theorists and just kind of almost like have them in a heated debate. And it's all through found text. So it was just like, for instance, um, our piece is 25 minutes long, we cut it down, we have like a director's cut, I guess, (laughs) that's 45 minutes, which is really amazing. But I think by the end, you feel like you're being truly brainwashed. While the 25 minute piece, it had over 100 sources cited. So it was a lot to dig through. And that's, Usually, I feel like people use art to escape from the madness of 2020. And for this one, we dived right in. <laughs> so,
1: and just to make sure I'm understanding, is this a performed piece where you're taking the found text and then reading it and performing it or you're taking the footage the actual video footage and editing it into a piece. Yeah.
0: So we're actually uh we tra- if it was video or audio we transcribed it and any articles and things like that we just copy pasted and the entire transcript because it is found text you can kind of click through it and see the exact link we found it at, or if it's a Facebook post that got deleted or something, because a lot of these social media platforms um, cleared Q conspiracy uh, content, then Matt luckily screenshotted all of them and we put them in a Google drive to link. But the piece itself is an audio piece. So we have these, um, the mainstream news media kind of in your left ear and the QAnon's conspiracy theorists pan toward the right. So they're kind of like bouncing around in your head.
1: Right. I love that. And I'm so disturbed by that as well. It's like literally you have these voices in your head or it's like the, the devil and the angel from those old cartoons.
0: Yeah, it is exactly like that. I initially actually thought this would be great, like, as a physical installation with localized sound. And you can like walk around a room and experience it. So maybe that will be the 45 minute cut. But I did have a friend listen to the 45 minutes and he said that toward the end, he was just kind of nodding along and he forgot what he was even listening to and was like, oh, no, I'm being red pilled.
1: (laughs) Totally. Yeah, I could see it being really mesmerizing, too, especially if you had it kind of like at an ambient level and you just like took it all in.
0: Oh, yeah, because Matt and I vote. I voice the mainstream news media and then Matt voices all the cute conspiracy theorists. And so we use everything in a really neutral tone as if Mm -hmm. we're just, you know, reading from a textbook. So it feels scarily objective.
1: Right. That's an interesting performance point you make, too, about how the objectivity of your voice or the the relative neutrality of your voice actually gives Things that might be kind of batshit crazy make them sound like, okay, perfectly normal if you say them calmly.
0: Right. And then opposite effect is uh, because on the Q side, because a lot of conservative news media and uh, Trump himself retweets or gets ideas from the Q community and kind of amplifies them, because that's the case, we have also incorporated some Trump rally speeches and we just deliver them in the same neutral voice, and actually, the opposite effect happens, where Trump just becomes more terrifying yeah. <laughs> when you get rid of all of his vocal ticks and uh, just listen to purely what he has to say without his facial expressions and shrugging and the general uh, strange type of charisma that he exudes. If you just strip it and it's just neutral, it just it's like really, really f- terrifying.
1: <laughs> wow. That's so interesting what you've learned in all of this. It's almost like creating this piece has been a form of research of understanding how messages work and how how much delivery is a part of things. Now here's a clip of the piece we're talking about, You Are the News Now by Jamie Sun Wu and Matt Chilton, inspired by Nocturne in 1200 Seconds by Ping Chong.
0: Protocols that must be followed. Tom Hanks and Lee Ellen Hanks DeGeneres appeared to be the official Illuminati spokespeople for, as as for the COVID-19 fake virus agenda. Not much more to it than one day at a time Ellen's approach, Ellen's show no? isn't canceled because she's mean. Take care of yourself. Whoever thinks that has lost touch with reality. Ellen DeGeneres has now been indicted and is most likely dead or in Gitmo. Hanks is only the most recent protagonist in a spate of high-profile pedophilia she, she, accusations the Obama family, levied the by Bush's, far-right commentators.
1: Let's talk about one of your older works or works still in progress because it's evolving and it exists in different formats. But Specially Processed American Me, which is SPAM as an acronym, is a piece that you've created that holds food history, storytelling workshops over a communal SPAM meal. But it's also exploring Spam, the canned meat itself as a portal into your Asian-American upbringing, your family's experiences with the Korean War, the legacy of American militarism, all sorts of things kind of woven together in a piece. And I, I got to see it a few months ago and it was it's really funny, too. Could you tell us more about that piece and maybe it's just start from the origin story?
0: Yeah, so it's interesting because the piece is um, primarily a theater performance project. And we've just been workshopping that story for a while. And we were planning to premiere it this year until the pandemic hit. So we're hoping we can premiere it either late next year or the year after. Who knows with theater? But the other part of the project is I do like food history lectures Mm -hmm. and workshops, which usually I'll partner with a local restaurant that serves spam. And uh, I'll invite attendees to learn more about how spam became significant in the Asian diaspora. And uh, usually there's a community storytelling element where we've been collecting like people's thoughts on spam yeah, and on these like pink spam shaped index cards.
1: (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Which has been
0: fun. And because we have all of these physical objects from the show and from those uh, collected stories, sometimes we do gallery exhibitions. It primarily revolves around the theater piece, but there's offshoots of lectures, workshops, and gallery exhibitions that are all kind of part of this umbrella project.
1: Right. And it sounds like even though you're not able to premiere the performance part of it, because it's such a multimodal transmedia kind of piece, you're able to do other pieces of it or almost like mix and match different parts of it, depending on different settings. Is that kind of how you've been coping with COVID and pushing this forward?
0: Yeah, as far as where the project status is, I mean, most recently we did that virtual play reading, which was very different from it was an evolution of the play reading you attended in person. Uh, and this feels like the most like solid final script <laughs> before we actually stage it. Uh, and that went really well. That was with Queen's Council on the Arts and Flushing Town Hall. And it was completely virtual. And I had a great director, Cream Washer, who kind of directed it Brady brunch style. So, you know, even though on the Zoom screen, when we look left, it would be different from what the audience saw. He knew... When uh, directing and looking at the actual stream like that, it would all match up. So there's this illusion of actors looking at each other or, you know, there's coordinated directing involved. So I thought it read really well and it was well received and it gave me the opportunity to really like dig into the to the text, which. As a multidisciplinary artist who started out in visual art, I'm very tempted to just go straight to the making, straight yeah. to like puppet building and set building and costume making. But, uh, and just kind of seeing the text as like a skeleton to kind of jump off of. And because of COVID, I was forced to really just look at the script and nothing else. And uh, it was really, I think it made the piece much stronger uh, for that reason.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting insight about how COVID has affected your process. I was talking to another writer friend who's got a lot done over the pandemic just because he hasn't been able to go places and and do things, right? And he he usually writes for uh, film and so he's been working on screenplays and that's even though production hasn't been happening or it's been slowed down, like the the actual writing part and the the forced focus on writing has been productive.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I think. I don't know right now i'm in brooklyn and Mm -hmm. i haven't really left all that much except for a two-week stint in utah that was more of a birthday treat for me and i like self-quarantined when i came back for two weeks and all of that but uh other than that i've been here and i'm already thinking you know what like i don't know if i am my most productive getting cabin fever in brooklyn new york (laughs) in the winter when everything's going to be completely closed Uh, so i am thinking perhaps i should move somewhere for a little bit with warmer weather where I can focus on writing. Because it's not just time, I think it's also where you are. And it looks like where you are is really beautiful, actually.
1: Yeah, I moved out to Sag Harbor uh, in the spring and now it's it's like pouring rain, but it's beautiful. So it's definitely not warmer than Brooklyn, but it has been good to just be out here since everything is remote anyway, to have like a little bit more space. I have a studio set up here and I've just been cooking a lot because I literally live in a one Chinese restaurant kind of town. It's like one Chinese restaurant and then all the other restaurants are like kind of fancy Hamptons places. So I basically just cook more um, and be domestic.
0: Oh, that's great.
1: What was your relationship with spam growing up? And what is your relationship with spam now that you've made a piece about it?
0: Well, growing up, I had it at home. It was just a staple and I didn't really think about it until I got a little older and I realized that it was kind of this gross, poor people food uh, and that's what it was known for. And I didn't realize, cause you know, I would normally have it in kimbap, like these rice rolls at maybe like Korean church picnics or yeah. my cousins grew up in Hawaii. So I would have it in spam musubi when I visited them. My mom would make spam fried rice and pack it for lunch.
1: My grandma would make Spam fried rice too.
0: Oh, yay. Yeah. My mom made it like kind of the Oma rice version where you put an egg on top and add a ketchup smiley face. Oh, nice. That is kind of how I had it. And uh, I realized that it was kind of this gross food, but I never internalized that. <laughs> I was yeah. just like, oh, well, no one else eats it, but I eat it, whatever. And I, I wasn't too ashamed of it. Cause even when you cook spam, like no one knows it's spam. They're just like, oh, it's cubes of meat. <laughs> like no one, you know, they right. don't see you taking it out of the can. And in fact, I think a lot of people, if they eat it without knowing what it is, they'll just be, oh, this is tasty, like bacon-y stuff, you know?
1: Right. That you're not supposed to just open the can and eat it, right? You're supposed to do stuff cook with it.
0: it. <laughs> yeah. But I think Americans have become so traumatized by the food that they themselves wouldn't be able to identify spam if it were just cooked and if they didn't see the can, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, that's an interesting word that you use with trauma, right? Because it is a food that originated in the U.S. and was, I want to say imposed, but it was brought to a lot of these places that had U.S. military presence, whether it was South Korea or Okinawa, Hawaii. And so can you talk a little bit more about this dimension of how this food has become sort of like ethnicized, like given this sort of like racialized marker and also this like socioeconomic class marker to it and how that's evolved?
0: Yeah. So spam originated uh, in Austin, Minnesota and is deeply American. In fact, a lot of the marketing that they still do is very much about supporting veterans. And they have like a whole spam museum in Austin, Minnesota, and it's the pride and joy of the, the Hormel family. So... Uh, And now Hormel's is a huge food conglomerate and they own all sorts of brands, including Applegate. (laughs) So (laughs) you can get your fancy meat at Applegate, (laughs) organic and nice, or you can get your spam. So, um, yeah, it's deeply American. It was a hit during times when meat was rationed. So the Great Depression or... Uh, during the war when meat was rationed. And initially, uh, spam was known, even like before all, all that hardship was known as just this very convenient future food. And I think in the past, people didn't associate processed food with being unhealthy or being for poor people. It was the food of the future, it was industrial and cool. So I think they marketed it as the miracle meat. Oh, wow. Yeah.
1: So they still use that tagline?
0: No way. Now their tagline is, don't knock it till you fry it.
1: It's almost like already defensive as the starting point.
0: Right, exactly. It went from like, we're the best to please try us.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's not as bad as you thought it was.
0: Right. And the entire reason, which is kind of interesting, is just because it did too well. You know, people ate it so often when meat was rationed that they became sick of it. You know, there was this collective cultural shift where they decided, "No more! <laughs> I've had enough." And it's not the product itself that grossed people out; it was just the fact that it oversaturated the market. And also, people did associate with times of need, right? Like the Great Depression, uh, World War II, and during World War II, a lot of the soldiers who came back associated with battle, so they were like, "Well, I don't, I don't want to eat this," right? Totally. So, uh, yeah, but then the way it came into Asia and and other parts of the world that, you know, has a strong U.S. military presence, it was just another American brand. So Americans brought over cigarettes and coffee, Hershey's chocolate, different things like that. And then American cheese, right? Vienna sausages and spam was just one of those things. It wasn't distinct from anything else. So people just thought, oh, this is like a luxury for us. You know, it's it's a good quality American product and it tastes good. And especially because they were recovering from the effects of the war, you know, meat was scarce and it was a joy to eat. And actually, technically, in a lot of these places, um, it was illegal to trade uh, rations with locals, but it, it happened and people who worked at the bases also kind of smuggled goods out and sold it in the black market and things. So, yeah, I think it was just a coveted American product. And eventually, specifically in Korea, when the economy uh, was built back up, uh, CJ is a food conglomerate in Korea. They bought the license for spam. So they actually have all these spam products that are completely unrelated to the Hormel US market. And they're still loyal to the original formula, but they have all these offshoot products that you can only find in Korea. And and definitely just seeing how they market it there and how people have these spam gift sets you can get for the holidays and all of that kind of shows you how different the connotation connotations are there. It's still known as this, you know, like a, it's a treat.
1: <laughs> yeah. What are some of the Korean limited edition or Korea only versions of spam?
0: Well, they definitely have those gift sets, which are really nice. You usually have it for holidays and they sell (laughs) one spam can that, you know, those giant cans they can get for olive oil. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like that size container in metal, except it's just a huge thing of spam.
1: Wow, that's amazing.
0: I know they have that. I don't know about specific flavors, but I do know that it was probably a gimmicky product, but I think you could actually buy it limited edition. They made Spam ice cream. Oh,
1: man. <laughs>
0: which was intense. And um, I appreciate that. They also just have really cool merch. I don't know. They're doing well there.
1: <laughs> what I find interesting about Spam, too, is how it's worked its way into combinations with local ingredients, right? So we've already talked about the spam musubi in Hawaii, which is spam with rice and nori seaweed and like teriyaki sauce or soy sauce. And in Korea, this happens as well, where there's, you've talked about spam with fried rice and other things. Can you talk about that dynamic of how different cultures have basically taken their ingredients and then incorporated spam in them and sometimes created new foods?
0: Yeah, for sure. I think yeah, it's, it's kind of like when meat was scarce and this was the meat, they, it was just this salty good that can be remixed with whatever. So I think just the adaptability of the actual food is what led to all these offshoots. And, and it's also about need, right? I wouldn't say it's equivalent to someone who's trying to create fusion food. With very consciously and being like, I'm just experimenting. I'm an artist. <laughs>
1: right.
0: It wasn't anything like that. But <laughs> for instance, spam musubi supposedly originated from Japanese incarceration. Yeah, when uh, Japanese Americans were incarcerated, that's supposedly how spam musubi was born in the camps. And with puttagege, which literally means army based stew, that was in Korea and. The history behind that is um, any leftovers from the U.S. military mess halls. People would kind of take out and mix with Korean goods and basically re-sanitize and eat it. So that's why you got you know mix of American cheese and Vienna sausages, spam, beans sometimes, and then Korean ingredients like rice cake and chili paste and kimchi. All of that to, to create this stew and just because it tastes good, people keep eating it. But the origins of that food is definitely from the war. And yeah, people people eat what they need to eat to survive. And then when it tastes good, they'll keep eating it. <laughs> so right. Yeah.
1: Well, I think what's interesting, too, about some of these dishes is that that you can't really replace the Spam with some fancier meat. Like, it needs to be Spam for, like, the texture and other things to be right. Like, a Spam musubi, like, I couldn't imagine using, like, a fancy real ham for that because the texture would be wrong. Or, like, maybe it's sort of like those videos where people make, like, the gourmet patissiere version of like a an Oreo cookie or something right, or a Twix, yeah. right? But it's like, I guess you could make like a really fancy pate kind of thing uh-huh. instead of spam, but like it sort of defeats the purpose. I you think. can
0: use Canadian bacon or something.
1: Yeah. That's really interesting. So let's zoom out a little bit beyond spam and- Yeah look at your culinary heritage in general. How would you describe your culinary heritage in terms of the foods you grew up with, what you first learned how to cook?
0: I was born and raised in Brooklyn, and my parents moved to America in the 70s. You know, my mom worked that whole time, and she still works. So the Korean food that we had at home was everything that was quick to make. And I think she has a good instinct for cooking. So even though it wasn't A huge menu of stuff. I still ate well. I didn't do the million types of panchan that a lot of Korean people do just because I didn't have like my grandma living in my home or anything. (laughs) Usually Korean families who can pull that off, either the mom like doesn't work or is a magic mom who can work and do all of that magically. Right. Or 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 you need an extra fridge
1: just to keep all of that stuff too.
0: Yeah. Oh, the kimchi fridge is a thing. That's true. I've never had one, but we, we just let all, the kimchi stink everything else in my fridge. And it wasn't a biggie. But yeah, so I, I ate a lot of spicy Korean food and, you know, she would mix in things like pasta, easy stuff that might be kind of like, here, eat this. We have no time. <laughs> but for the most part, we stuck to Korean dishes. It actually took me a really long time to appreciate American breakfast foods because... Mm-hmm. Korean food. We don't like everything is breakfast food.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Leftovers. Or you don't have like a sugar rush for breakfast as your default.
0: No. Like, yeah. For instance, pancakes. I didn't understand pancakes till I went to college, to be honest. It took me a really long time to be like, why are you eating cakes for breakfast? (laughs) (laughs) And then, uh, yeah, we're like, Just eggs with nothing. I was like, oh, I want to put it on top of a pibimbap, you know? Yeah. Uh, So, but, you know, I I was raised in Brooklyn and I had friends who were like many immigrant families. So there were like Russian and Italian and and Chinese. And so I I kind of ate at my friends' homes too, you know? And then when I moved to Manhattan, uh, when I was in middle school, then my palate really expanded to everything because... There was just so much food around that i could could eat because when i lived in brooklyn i lived in gravesend which was like a really sleepy and is still a very sleepy neighborhood and then i in manhattan i moved to midtown which was the complete opposite so it was a kind of a culture shock but i made it and and now i eat absolutely everything i think for instance my favorite fruit is durian (laughs) i love durians (laughs) wow you're Uh, hardcore I'm still warming up to stinky tofu. I want to like it, but if I'm going to be completely honest, like, I don't love it. I'll I'll still eat it, but I don't love it.
1: I feel like stinky tofu, being Taiwanese, I can say this. In some ways, it's kind of like a Taiwanese inside joke. I mean, I think there are people who really like it, but really me and my Taiwanese friends basically just like have it as a thing that we give to our non-Taiwanese friends to make them try it as a sort of rite of passage. But it's not like I like seek it out. Like there's so many better, more like easily accessible Taiwanese foods that it's like it's fine. It's more about like the texture than anything else. And you could like very much just fry a piece of tofu that's not stinky and put the sauce on it and it would still taste good, in my opinion.
0: Right, right. Yeah. It's like tofu cheese.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's just like it gives it a little bit of funk, but if you just like fried the tofu and had some like kimchi or something else that had a little bit of a fermented funk, like that would work too, right? Uh, You don't have to stink up your whole house to make it. My dad made some once. Growing up, like they've found a source of it in in California, brought it back yeah. to Phoenix and like fried it up, but it like stank up the whole house, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not. It's more like a street food that you get. I don't think most people would make it at home either,
0: right? Actually, speaking of, uh, my grandma sometimes visited in the summers, and she would make her own tenjang, mm-hmm. which is like a fermented soybean paste. She would mash up the soybeans, marinated, and all of that, and I remember. My brother bought fresh Tim's <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, oh, great. Can you use them? To, like, and then he walks out of the room and he's, she's like, great, new, new shoes. And she puts them on and just starts smashing the beans oh, wow. with his shoes. I mean, they survived it. And she's like, it's fine. I'll, I'll, I will I'll washed it and I'll wash it off later. But he was quite upset that his new Tim's were now being used to smash soybeans, beans. And she, she, yeah, create these like blocks of... You know, these big blocks of mashed soybeans so that it could ferment and it would definitely stink up her house as well. So I, I can relate to the making a stink for the love of food.
1: I think there's an interesting dynamic, too, with the connection between stink in air quotes and, and shame So Mm -hmm. there was a Korean lady who lived in my old building in Manhattan and one day we were going down the elevator together and she apologized to me and I was like, why are you apologizing? She's like, oh, I'm making bone broth and it must be stinking up the whole building. And I was like, no, I don't Mm -hmm. mind that smell at all. In fact, I find it really comforting, but it's interesting that someone would say that to a stranger or like to a neighbor like that like automatically as a thing. So I wonder if things like this I think a lot of us who grew up with immigrant family backgrounds have these sort of lunchbox moments of like, oh, you, like your food stinks, according to somebody in like a dominant white culture. Do you have any thoughts on like stink and shame when it comes to some of these food ways?
0: Well, definitely when, for instance, my mom and I moved to Midtown Manhattan and we were in an apartment building. And this is something that I mentioned in the show too. Um, sort of that move, because in Gravesend, we lived in a house. You know? Yeah. Uh, so when we moved to that apartment building, my mom actually stopped making kimchi jjigae and tenjjong jjigae together wow. because she was afraid it would stink up the halls. And um, it's something that I really, really miss. And she's like, oh, well you can just eat it at a restaurant, but it was never the same. And uh, I, I really, 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 really missed having it. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a reality.
1: What were some of the first things that you learned how to cook yourself?
0: Let's see. there's this chicken that my mom makes, which I guess she actually got the recipe from my aunt who lives in Japan for a bit. So mm. it's almost like a spicy teriyaki chicken. Uh, okay. she calls it soy chicken, even though it's not soy meat. It's just like soy saucy chicken. and it's it's super hot. Oh, I made it for you.
1: yeah, you okay, so it's been like this sort of long braised chicken that soaks up all the It's not the even flavors. long
0: braised. You just you know, take the chicken. You add soy sauce, dried chili pepper, red chilies, and uh, onion, garlic. That's it. And some black pepper and soy sauce and uh, brown sugar or honey. And it's really fast to cook. It's it's not a long process at all.
1: I didn't even have to ask. And you've shared your easy cook recipe for the episode for our listeners. So yeah. I appreciate that.
0: Oh, is that a thing? We we gotta have an I normally easy cook do recipe. like an easy
1: cook recipe for my guests if they have one to, to voice over, but you just did. So that's yeah,
0: perfect. it's an easy cook.
1: <laughs> I still remember that meal, honestly, like um because it was just this one pot thing plus the rice, and it just had so much flavor for, like you said, a relatively simple list of ingredients.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm glad you liked it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> do you have any food related habits or rituals for when you're writing or you're on set or um, how did did these worlds collide for you?
0: Well, the project itself just has a lot of food in it. Yeah. So, you know, my cast and I are literally eating these foods on stage. Uh, Let's see, let's split the list. So there's spam fried rice. Uh There is spam musubi, the kimbap, those rice rolls. We have puttejige in the show, that army base do. We have uh, the Okinawan goya champuru, which is like a bitter bitter melon dish with spam. We've got uh, the spam kalaguin, which is a cold ceviche-like almost, um, at least the way it's marinated, dish from Guam. And then we have spam silog, which is kind of like a uh, fried rice with spam and egg, this breakfast seafood almost, which is from the Philippines. So that's already eight different spam dishes in one show. I'm honestly not sure how we're going to keep that up. But...
1: And do you cook all of these dishes for each performance? Or is it more like a potluck thing?
0: That is the plan. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, it's intense. But you know, like... We'll probably have things to cheat a little bit. Maybe we'll fill the bottoms of the bowl so that it's not all food. We can just top it off, stuff like that. But I haven't gotten that far. We were supposed to when we thought about the premiere, but now I have more time to think.
1: (laughs) I like how you make it a tasting for the audience. I remember going to your reading and you were selling individually wrapped Spam Musubi there. So really, we could actually like taste what you all were talking about and performing about and singing about.
0: Yeah, and normally, you know, the way it's written right now at the very end of the show, people pass out samples of Spam and you can take it or leave it. They'll just be on little toothpicks and people will walk around the audience. So there's that. I think, yeah, in the dream premiere in the future, we do want to have Spam concessions. So I'm glad that you like the musubi. We were thinking that might be a staple in our concessions.
1: That's awesome. Have you received any reaction from Hormel about your piece?
0: So they know about it. I haven't gotten direct correspondence. Uh, I know someone who works there for the company, um, but on the Applegate Side, Mm -hmm. and they've been vouching for a meeting. But I think once the pandemic hit, they had some big conference that they were organizing that got canceled. Yeah. And so they've been kind of scrambling around after that. But, you know, they're doing really well because spam is a great quarantine food. Yeah. (laughs) So in times of need, you know, especially in the beginning where people were in lockdown and were freaking out and there was no pasta in the supermarket aisles and everyone was trying to get yeast, you know, that that moment yeah, in totally. New York City, uh, where people were planning for like the apocalypse uh spam sales shot up by a lot. So they're doing well. I, I don't know what that conversation would look like just because I do think that the show and the events I make definitely for people who are nostalgic about spam get even more nostalgic about spam. And the people who are just curious and ambiguous or maybe even hate the food will often want to give it one more try. So I think it's a net positive for the brand, but the story itself is, you know, I don't hide any of the more uncomfortable parts of its history and more the difficult conversations that come with it. And in the latest iteration, Jay Hormel, who was the one who created Spam, and he was the CEO at the time, and his father was the one who, like, even who uh, founded the Hormel company. He plays a major role in the show now. He's a main character, and he's a caricature, right? And it's not entirely flattering. Yeah, it's
1: so, not pure homage. You're really looking at some not, of the realities of history.
0: Right. Yeah. So I'm not sure how it would be perceived, but. I would love to have a conversation with them. It hasn't happened yet.
1: So on the show, we also like to turn the tables and have guests ask me anything they want. So if you have questions for me, we'll turn the tables.
0: Is there a food that you eat that you have ambivalent feelings about?
1: You know, I think it would be MSG because mm. it's in so much stuff like Asian food, but also like processed American foods as well. And my Mom is really opposed to it, um, mm-hmm. and she sort of bought into this health culture thing about, like, MSG is bad for you, even though the chemical that's identical to MSG is found naturally in lots of foods that we eat, right. uh, but there's that whole basically like racist fabricated narrative around MSG and the Chinese restaurant syndrome, which isn't really a thing, right? It's purely kind of a psychosomatic thing of like, oh, people eat at a Chinese takeout and then they, they feel bad for whatever reason.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But like MSG just makes things taste better. And if you look at the labels of things, like uh, this chili oil that I like, it's got MSG in it and it makes it taste better. I think it's less ambivalence. I've sort of pushed past the ambivalence of like growing up with like parents who are like, oh, no, like we don't add MSG to things like they don't have it in the kitchen. So like, let's just be real. It's in a lot of these sauces and things that we buy anyway. So like just because you have MSG powder doesn't make you any less of a cook.
0: Have you tried to explain that to your parents?
1: Not really, because they're more into this like health food thing. And they also they don't like how much salt I use in my food either. Like they have what I would call blander tastes oh, okay. Uh, compared to my cooking. And so I think it's a it's a different thing. And it's I think it's also an older generational Taiwanese thing of you're supposed to have like the original taste of things. And so the traditional food isn't super complex or super heavily spiced and you're just supposed to be like oh the the pork is supposed to taste like pork and the vegetables are supposed to taste like vegetables and it's a sort of lighter palette Uh and i just favor more umami i think and more spice
0: (laughs) yeah no that's that's fair as long as you know they're consistent i think if they weren't consistent like I don't know what else is bad for them that they could have eaten. But yeah, they're all across the board. It sounds like they make this a role. They're not just picking and choosing the out of all the bad things you could possibly eat. <laughs> yeah. They're not discriminatory, really, if it comes down to it. No, it's <laughs> more just... that I
1: think they just have like a blander palate or they don't crave as much as umami in food as yeah.
0: I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm on the camp of like foods that punch me in the face. Are foods I welcome.
1: <laughs> I had this realization recently actually that sometimes heavily spiced foods are meant to be a little bit punishing and it's like it's punishing you while it's in your mouth, but the reward is actually like after you swallow or like you have the the sip of like soda or milk or whatever and it's like oh it's the the relief part of it is just as part of their experience as like the heat part if you mm. if you know what i mean
0: yeah i could see that i never thought about it that way but it's true i also just like the pain part like i think it just clears your sinuses keeps your blood flowing. And especially if you're sharing like a spicy, that's the best part, like sharing a spicy meal with someone just feels really like refreshing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Last year, I went to Nashville for for work. I was doing some facilitation at a corporate conference there. And after the conference, we went and had Nashville hot chicken, which mm. is like, Probably one of the spiciest foods I've had in my life. And I only got the regular spicy. They don't even let you order the super spicy if you're like a a first timer. And Mm -hmm. it really was like this sort of religious thing where it's sort of punishingly hot and you're Mm -hmm. just sitting there sweating it out. But it, it has this like long tail, I guess, of the food experience where you finished your Nashville hot chicken and you're just kind of sitting in your own sweat and the endorphin rush goes on for a while. Um, And I thought that was an interesting concept for food where it's like, it's not just a meal or like a quick thing, like your breakfast, right? But it's like a thing that demands attention. It's like, it's made a whole evening out of it, even if you're not like eating it all evening, if that makes sense. Right,
0: yeah, for sure. I do wanna say one more thing about the spam project. Yeah. Yeah, I did also want to mention that a big part of the spam project was an excuse to talk about the Korean war with my family. Uh, and cause that's, that's where it was introduced. Uh, and, and so from that experience, I learned about my relatives in North Korea. Wow. And uh, those are conversations I had never had with my grandma or my dad at all. So the project was really an excuse to delve into that history. And I learned a lot more than I thought thought I would. So.
1: So what was the opening point specifically, just the fact that you made a play about it and that opened up the conversation with your family or was it the spam aspect of it and saying like, oh, what were your spam memories? Like, how did that happen?
0: Yeah, I think first of all, I've been thinking about spam for a long time before the play. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So I was always curious that it's a stigmatized food, but it's a deeply American food. And then now it's a very Asian food. I mean, some Asian people don't even realize it's an American food. (laughs) I mean, it's crazy, but I just thought that was so strange to be ashamed of something that was from here. And then when I learned that it's because of the war, it really made me feel like, well, what else do I not know or understand? Uh, And, this was just like a small hint in showing that I don't understand things. <laughs> and, and so uh, it was an excuse for me to then ask my grandmother the first time she had spam and it was actually during the war and that opened a whole conversation about that. And that's something that I explore in my show. And um, with my father, once I had that conversation with my grandmother, I felt more comfortable asking my father. And you know I've been working on the show for like two and a half years. And it's going to be three, I guess, in January, but that's only because of the pandemic. Uh, but yeah, for, you know, a straight two and a half years, I was working on it. And my my dad at that point was comfortable to share his side. It actually, actually came about because he heard my grandmother's side and was like, mm-hmm. I have stuff to say. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, um, so my dad was born in Pyongyang and came down as a child uh, with my grandmother. And uh, I didn't know all the details of that at all. Like, for instance, my grandpa, so my my dad's dad, actually got stuck in North Korea for a long time and had to be smuggled down. And I had no idea about that. I knew that we had origin in North Korea, but I I didn't really fully understand the impact of them coming down and what that meant to them because it's a difficult thing to talk about. And I, I think a lot of people just want to move on. My dad is a very nostalgic person and he clings to the past pretty hard so whatever photos he did keep from uh, the family when he moved around um, he did show me and those were really eye-opening too and i think the other part of it the reason why i wanted to know is because you know my mom's taken some business trips in korea and every now and then we'll visit just for fun really but every time we go we stay in a hotel like my family actually doesn't know anyone we can stay with in Korea anymore. And that to me is really insane. And I think I only now realize it's because most of them are in North Korea.
1: Wow. In some ways, South Korea is the first adopted country for your family and then the US is the second. Um, Correct,
0: exactly. Like my grandpa, I learned that my grandpa didn't want to move to the US even though all of his children did mm -hmm. eventually because he didn't want to move again. And he still felt like North Korea was his home, you know, in Pyongyang. And he, in fact, like went on a hike. My dad had this emotional story where like they went hiking together just to see this mountain you can see in North Korea, like on top of that hike. And he was just like bawling, you know. Wow. So there's still a lot of longing for a place you can't reach because, you know, my my great grandparents got stuck there. They never came down, you know. Wow. So his, But yeah, my, my grandpa's parents are still there or I guess they've passed now. But, you know.
1: Is there any way to contact, like, the descendants of family members who remained in North Korea?
0: Not currently. There used to be a way. Uh, yeah, they, they don't have that anymore. I mean, they have those really, really rare family reunifications, which probably won't be happening anytime soon. But And, you know, a lot of those folks are now dying out. For descendants, there was a family search, but now there's, like, a complete ban of Americans trying to go in there. So... The relations right now are are not great.
1: Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that painful part of your family's history. Are there any foods that are from North Korea that your family still eats as a way of connecting with that background?
0: The thing is, a lot of Korean food is just from everywhere. Like if you go to a standard Korean restaurant. so um, But one dish in particular is Munnaengmyeon. Mm-hmm. which they'll have at many, many Korean restaurants in K-Town or whatever. But it's um, a cold, cold noodle dish. Uh, you use um, buckwheat noodles.
1: Okay. Is that the one in broth or the one with the chili sauce?
0: So it's kind of, it's in this cold broth with shaved ice in it.
1: And oh, I've then, had that. Yeah, that's so good.
0: Yeah, there's a little. it's a little vinegary, has a little bit of mustard in it. And then um, you have boiled egg in and maybe a couple slivers of beef and maybe some cucumbers. And you can make it spicy, but some people just leave it kind of like vinegary, mustardy. Uh, so mul is is, yeah, a food from Pyongyang.
1: Well, thanks for that recommendation as well. Do you have any final thoughts that you want to share with our audience before we head out and also tell people where they can find you and your work?
0: It's like... A really, 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 really weird year, and I know everyone is at home. I mean, for instance, like I've been listening to you know the Spotify roundups. Yeah. So it turns out I had been listening to twenty eight thousand three hundred something minutes of podcasts this year. Wow! So over twenty eight k podcast. <laughs> And so I, I appreciate that whoever's listening is, is also on the podcast train with me. I think they've been especially necessary while living in a more isolated world. And I appreciate that people are, you know, cooking at home more and figuring things out. So I, I'm, I'm happy this podcast is part of that whole process. And hopefully we will have a more normal experience as time goes on.
1: Thanks. Yeah, let's hope. Jamie, where can folks find you online?
0: So you can find my work at jamiesunwu.com. My name is spelled a little funny. So it's J-A-I-M-E, like the Spanish way you say Jaime. (laughs) It's jamiesunwu.com. And uh, my spam project is speciallyprocessed.com. Wonderful. Yeah. And you can follow those two handles, speciallyprocessed or jamiesunwoo, on like Instagram and Facebook
1: great and we're at easy cook bear everywhere so jamie thanks so much for coming on the show and uh it was great to reconnect as well
0: yeah thank you
1: yeah take care okay, bye. bye easy cook